0: Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you all for coming back again. Uh, you must really like history if you've come now three weeks in a row, listening to me drone on about about history. Okay, but we'll try to make this interesting and uh, as well as educational and enlightening. I was telling earlier uh, we have a number of, of things to this evening, and uh, we're in week three, and uh, we're now looking at those folks that have been valiant for the faith, these are martyrs, apologists, and polemicists. Before we leave that, everybody know what that word is? Okay, apologists and polemicists. Apology, we commonly use when we ask for forgiveness. You know, I apologize, okay. The original word, though, apology, meant to give a defense And so those individuals who gave an apology were externally focused writing to governors, to authority figures, to the emperor, and they would make an apology. They would make a reasoned defense for Christianity. Polemicists are those folks who are internally focused in the church to correct heresy and error. Okay, got the picture? Okay, Um, we're also going to talk about Constantine and we're going to talk about the New Testament canon, okay? Everybody familiar with the word canon in this context? Canon means rule or uh, law, not talking about those things that shoot cannon balls, okay? All right, Uh, okay, let's get going, want to talk a little bit, uh, have a short review, see if you know, if, you know, I know you've slept a few times since we last met, you know, uh, but, and then we have a short review about that, have talk about martyrdom just a little bit, then we talk about apostolic fathers and the rise of bishops, theological heresies inside the church, Constantine and the Council of Nicaea. I'm sorry, Joe, I'm probably standing in your way. And then the polem- apologists and polemicists. Now, I was thinking about this, um, and I was telling some others earlier, I get excited about getting ready to teach and prepare, and um, and I thought, you know, I ought to tell you folks that, you know, if you have some questions, put your hand up. I wondered if maybe you were being so polite that you didn't want to interrupt, but feel free to do so, please. All right, let's get going. You can see uh, I was color-coding martyrdom here. Uh, let's... Normally, we'd break this down, but I've got a lot of things that I want to try to get through this evening, and so I'm just going to give it to you in one, as I usually say, one swell foop. Okay, one fell swoop. Uh, Martyr. Martyr comes from the Greek word meaning witness or testimony. In Acts 22.20, it talks about the blood of Stephen, your witness. So martia is the word for martyr. Now remember as we as the church emerges and disassociates itself from Judaism more and more the Roman empire is getting suspect at different times there was severe and painful persecution it wasn't all the time but neither was it absent and so what happened is individuals were being martyred who was the first martyr Stephen Stephen, Stephen. acts Chapter 7, isn't it? Okay. And he he was uh, martyred, first martyr uh, of the church. And so uh, those people, though, who underwent persecution but were not killed, that is, they were faithful, came before magistrates. Magistrate says, are you a Christian? Yes, I am. Recant. I cannot do that. Sometimes they were persecuted, put in prison, starved, beaten, dragged through the streets, all kinds of horrific things to both men and women. Some of those, though, were not killed. They weren't martyred, and those folks were called confessors. That is, they were faithful, confessed their faith before God and and mankind, but were not martyred. But very early in the history of the church, martyrs were considered heroes. That's not hard to understand, would you think? And there are many, many occasions when martyrs were faithful before, if they were in the Colosseum, before uh, uh, animals or before magistrates or before being beheaded or maimed in some horrific way. And they were faithful in their testimony And this was a testimony to unbelievers, and many times unbelievers would say, anybody that has that kind of faith, I want to know more about it. And they became believers themselves. Um, So martyrdom was considered to be sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Martyrs were believed to receive special visions of Christ. Anybody think why that might have been the case? We saw that happen with Stephen. Exactly. Exactly. What? Remember, remember in the in the in the book of Acts, Stephen is being martyred, and he sees the heavenly Christ standing at before, uh, in in heaven and before the throne, and so people believed that, and for all we know, that may have occurred on on other occasions. Martyrs were believed to enjoy special privileges in the presence of Christ. If you read them Revelation chapter six, and they because of they were sharing in Christ's role as judge, and so they were should be able to grant forgiveness to weaker brothers and sisters on earth. Now, knowing what you know about church history, does that sort of ring a little bell of some kind? How about praying for the intercession of the saints? Hear about that? You know, let's pray to Saint so-and-so. Maybe they can help me. Where did they get that idea? Right here. Okay? So, uh uh-oh. Basis for praying for the intercession of saints. One of the things, if you read church history, you can see that when things start in a very small, and we would say innocent, well-meaning way, it begins to evolve and becomes Something unrecognizable from what it originally started as. Because in the Catholic Church today, you have all kinds of prayers going on to saints and lighting candles and so on. And here's the inception of it right here, way back early. And death by martyrdom was believed to bring special forgiveness of sins. That is, if you were suffering in this way of losing your life, this was kind of the highest good. You were experiencing what they would refer to as a baptism of blood. Any, nothing very surprising about it, about that, is it? Okay. All right, let's proceed. I put this chart, uh, put this map back up again because so much of what we're gonna talk about this evening is dealing with different locations. And um, I know that this is kind of a pedestrian little map. it's not very colorful, not very exciting, but it's the best one that I could find that lists all the different places that are important. And I realize just now, um, I want someone with a good loud voice David Garrett, somebody nominated you. Uh, <laughs> uh they yeah, they David, I want you to I want you to look up Colossians one nineteen and one twenty five. And I saw Philip Barrett uh, come in over there. Happy new father, congratulations. Happy for you and and Jen. Uh Philip, look up uh, Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, and um, I need somebody to help my memory here. In a little while, we're going to be talking about Theodosius and and Ambrose, if I don't forget. So, Bill, Godina, you're appointed. If I get near the end of this, and I haven't told you that story, you're to remind me, okay? Okay, Theodosius and Ambrose, okay? All right, here we go. Now, we're going to take a pretty quick trip on this map, so listen up. we got a lot, a lot of stuff here. And, all right, over here is Gaul. What's that? France. France. Down here is Spain, right? Down here, North Africa. All right now. Now, this blue line that you see, this is the boundary of the then-known Roman Empire at that time. Inside this... Things were pretty peaceful, as we would say the Pax Romana, all right? You had peace, you had roads, you had communication, you had legions posted here and there. Things were pretty much under control. On the outside of that boundary were the barbarians, and that was not a pleasant place to be. It's hard for you and I to think about it, but these are desolate places punctuated with little groups of people and there is no law there are no police forces there aren't any local establishments there are fiefdoms and chieftains you could be out here happily married a couple of kids farming taking care of your goats and your sheep and all of a sudden Little raiding party comes along, snatches you and your kids and your wife, violates your wife, and if she's really attractive, they'll keep her around for a while, but they're going to sell you and your kids into slavery, and they're going to take all your stuff. It's not a very pleasant place to be. All right. So enough of that. Here you have Cologne and Trier, which is now in what country? Up Up there in Germany. All right. So now, we have four centers in the early church history, four centers of learning and power. Rome, Carthage, Alexandria, and Antioch. There it is. Antioch's over there. All right. Now, we saw last time in Acts chapter 1 that a number of these places are mentioned as locations from where Jewish faithful Old Testament people came to Jerusalem to offer their sacrifices. Remember that? Okay. Peter preaches, and the people are saying, we're hearing our own language. And they were from Bithynia and Pontus and Galatia and Mesopotamia. Now, Mesopotamia, you've heard that ever since seventh grade history class. What's Mesopotamia mean? Land between, what rivers are we talking about? Tigris, Euphrates, right over there. If you go to Washington, D.C., and you're coming in from the Virginia side, you're going to cross over the bridge, and the bridge is crossing over the what river? Potomac River. So in a way, it was named the River River. Okay, but uh, so Potomac means, or Potomac, yes, means river. Now, over here... Right up here and around this, around this area right here, you see this whole country. What country is this? Turkey. Turkey. Here's Patmos. This is where the penal colony where John's been banished, and he's out there writing the book of Revelation. Here's Ephesus. Uh, Timothy's the uh, pastor of, of the church there. John probably was released after his imprisonment was there, probably died there. You have the other cities of of the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, right in there. Here's Achaia, which is southern Greece. Macedonia is northern Greece. Up here in the corner, you have this city called Byzantium. Byzantium later becomes Constantinople, but we'll get there in just, just a minute. Now... You're also going to hear tonight about Nicaea. Nicaea was a little city down the road just a little ways. Now, right across from Byzantium was a city called um, Nicomedia. Nicomedia is going to be important when we start talking about some of the Roman emperors in just a little bit. Now, over here... We all know that this is France. If you plowed through uh, Caesar's Gallic Wars in high school Latin, you translated all of this. Here is Lyon, Lyon, France. During, um, uh, during Marcus Aurelius's reign as emperor, 48 people were massacred in one of the circus games there at Lyon. Marcus Aurelius didn't worry too much about Christians. He was a stoic. Didn't care too much, would occasionally raise a scepter for a few Christians to die somewhere, but he didn't take it all that seriously. He had lots of other things to worry about. Now, over here, off the map, is what country? Britain. Right. That's going to be important also, coming attractions in just a few minutes. Now, let me stop. Questions? Any? Uh, were they part of the Roman Empire? Yep. Yes. Uh, Julius Caesar had invaded uh, Britain in, uh, for, in 50, 48 B.C., something like that. And, yes, the, the Britons were there. Hadrian came along. Hadrian was an emperor. He was born in Spain, but he rose to power through the military. And, of course, uh, I'll make it relevant in the news. What country over there just recently voted to stay in the British Union? Scotland. Okay. Now, the Romans and lots of others never were able to conquer the Scots. So what Hadrian – you you glad of that, Bob? Yeah, okay. Scots ancestry there? Okay. So what happened was Hadrian was emperor – he sent, one of his leg- sent a couple of legions over there, and one of them got lost. We don't know what happened. We think the Scots wiped them out. Uh, so what he said was, okay, if we can't beat them, imagine, imagine the country of Britain. As it goes up, it starts tapering kind of like a triangle, and there's a narrow part up there. And he said, let's just build a wall across there and the Scots can stay on the other side and will stay on this side. It's known as Hadrian's Wall if you've ever, ever been up there. All right, so let's, let's move on. You saw, this, you saw this last time, and I wanted to revisit it because we're going to uh, take a look at a couple of things here this evening. These are the different Roman emperor reigns, and in each one of them there was some kind of sporadic uh, persecution that occurred. Diocletian over here launched in the last couple of years of his reign what is known as the great persecution that is he wanted to wipe christianity out Diocletian was born a slave in germany either ran away or somehow got his freedom got into the roman army rose up through the ranks and and eventually became emperor he was what we would call old school. We have to return to the old ways. At this time in the Roman Empire, their, arm, their legions had suffered some defeat. They have massive plagues. They have a disease of, other, of one kind or another. Crops had failed. The Carthaginians had stolen some of their grain and crops. And so these calamities are because the gods are being forsaken by all of these different uh, polytheistic groups out here. And these Christians are part of the problem. And so he launched for about two and a half years an empire-wide wipeout of the Christians. If you were known to be a Christian, you could expect sooner or later the military was going to come to your house and they weren't going to knock on the door. They came in. Anything that was Christian was, including you, taken and destroyed. That means books, manuscripts, scrolls, whatever. Now, I want to pause here for a second. There's something very important here. Diocletian never said it, and that is this. Men and women, but mankind never does evil so completely or so cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. Diocletian said we must return to the old Roman gods, and he's fueled with religious intensity. The person who made that statement that I just quoted was Blaise Pascal in the 1700s in his book Pensee. This is something that you and I need very much to ponder because just as infidels can create great sins with religious conviction, so can we as Christians because we see something or we hear what what something that somebody has done and we will throw our self-righteous robes around us and we will convict them, or we go to the other extreme and commit evil by not judging and dealing with sin when we should. Am I communicating? That makes sense. Okay, so we'll pause. We'll learn something from Diocletian, old retrobate, but we'll get we'll see him in just uh, another way in just a little bit. Okay, now this period. About 100 AD, Judaism and Christianity had pretty well separated. The Jews had said to the Roman authorities, not us, we're not part of them, you deal with them, we're legal, they're, they're, they're bad folks. So the Romans began a period of sporadic uh, persecution of, of Christianity. During this period, from about 100 AD, over here To about the Edict of Milan in 313, we have what's known as the Apostolic Fathers. Now, who are they? You may have heard that term. I'm just going to give you a blitz here really quick because we're talking about the Apostolic Fathers and the rise of bishops. A group of, uh, a group of leader, Jewish leaders were sitting around the table one day in, in Jerusalem, and they said, you know, we're getting pretty, pretty good size. What do you think we ought to be? And somebody says, well, how about we be the Apostolic Fathers? And they said, oh, that sounds good. Okay, meeting's adjourned. No, that, that's not how it happened. Okay. Do you, you like that, Philip? Okay. Okay. All right, now. Okay, so what, what happens? Apostolic Fathers are a group of individuals and documents. We're not talking always about a living person. And it's the period here of what we call the anti-Nicene period, anti-meaning before Council of Nicaea that took place in 313. These are the earliest documents after the New Testament itself, and we'll talk more about that later. What, what, did, they, what did these apostolic fathers do, these documents and these individuals? They exhorted, they encouraged, and they instructed. Clement of Rome is one of the first. He wrote the book, or what we would call letters, of first and second Clement. He wrote this to the church of Corinth about uh, around 95 AD, which is only about probably 20, 25 years after Paul had written to him. So this is early. You can go in the library, and you can look up First and Second Clement. And you can read, and he's still addressing some of the same stuff Paul talked about. This is not an inspired, that is not inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it certainly is a literal, real, real book. Another gentleman, Ignatius of Antioch. Remember where Antioch is on the map? Okay. He lived around 110, 115. He was concerned about false teachers. Polycarp of Smyrna. We talked about him last week. What happened to him? He was martyred in Smyrna, right? Okay, he's about 85, 87 years old uh, in 156 AD. And he wrote to the church at Philippi, just like Paul had written to Philippians. The Didache, this is a document. It's referred to as the teaching of the 12 and it, it, we don't know if it was just one author or multiple authors of that, but it dealt with morality in the church and how we should live. And the Epistle of Barnabas was not written by the Apostle or by the uh, Barnabas of the New Testament. In that particular book, he's showing, he's showing God setting aside the Jews and emphasizing the church, but it's being done in a distorting way. Shepherd of Hermas deals with angelic visions and it's legalistic and it tends to show that God has limited mercy. So therefore, it too was rejected. But now let's talk about this for just a second about the rise of bishops. Remember now, we don't have denominations. We have one church. Almost everybody moves and gets about by means of foot walking here and there. So you have little churches Little house churches. Many times you don't have highly educated people. They're believers. They may have a part of the Old Testament scriptures. That may be all they have. And so what happens is that they get together, and we have some recorded events where it records that they got together. They pray. They sing. They take up a collection for the poor. They give that to their leader. Now, you remember when Paul, on his missionary journeys, went around and established the the different uh, churches, whether it was on Crete or in Philippi or wherever he would appoint leaders. And we call those in the New Testament elders and deacons. Right. The word elder in the Greek word is episkopos. It can be translated elder. It can also be translated bishop. You can go to the Episcopal Church, okay, if you have enough money. All right, that's, that's a joke. All right, okay. Now, so what happens is that we have local people, a small group. They have a leader with maybe limited abilities. I'm going to tell you, but remember, God is building his church. He's inspiring people to speak. You have prophets that are speaking. You don't have a lot of written text yet. They have some Old Testament. Yes, that's true. But as the little church would begin to grow, they would appoint this leader, and the leader usually was somebody that had the most knowledge. As the churches began to grow, they moved increasingly to elders, to bishops, and pretty soon you would have larger churches, and the main leader was being called a bishop. And if you had this church with this bishop and down the road down here you have another church with its bishop pretty soon you would have various churches with their respective bishops and then you would usually human nature being what it is you would want somebody to have authority or control over all of them and guess what they're called archbishops right so Initially, these men, these bishops, as exercise shepherding responsibility, elder, other elders and deacons reported to them. You can see where this is going to lead. Right? Okay. Now, let's take a look here in this early church history period. This is looking at it another way. Don't forget the similar slide you saw earlier with the sporadic uh, persecution. That is also going on, symbolized by the, these two red uh, spots. Here's the general conditions and, the, and forces at work. At this time, and we're looking at approximately from 100 AD all the way over here to about 400, the, two, the New Testament is not fully defined. Remember, Paul may be in prison, or he may be in Corinth, or he may be in Rome, and he's writing a letter, and maybe a copy, it gets sent to some other church. They recognize that this is a special document, so they make copies, and they forward it on. But you may have little churches here and there that don't have any of this. So keep in mind, we didn't, you know... On on the morning of 100 A.D., people didn't go to church, and boom, there it is. The whole scroll's all done, and just roll, roll it out, and you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts, and Romans, and Galatians, Ephesians, you know. This, this is very, very fragmented. You've got heretical teachings going on within the church in different places. You have inspired and heresy texts together within the church, you have persecution on the out, on the outside until the edict of Milan right here and you've got political turmoil going on now we're going to talk a little bit later about the council of nicaea but you have this sporadic persecution going on you have paul writing his various uh, epistles you have the gospel, you have the apostles write, writing their respective works And then you get to the Edict of Milan where Constantine says, okay, Christianity is now legal. Don't make the mistake of of thinking that Constantine said Christianity is going to be the religion of the empire because he never said that. All he did was he just made it legal so that people don't come to your house and drag you out in the street and kill you anymore. Now, what happens then, though, persecution hits a high point under Diocletian. Constantine comes. The persecution dries down. Now you have church and state mingled together, and this enters into a whole new situation because now... People are using the church as a means to political power. And the church begins to become more and more secular. So Bill, over here, Emperor Theodosius and Ambrose. We'll come back to that in just a bit, but don't forget. Let me forget. All right. Now, one of the heresies that started really, really early was what we know of as Gnosticism. Everybody heard that word? Okay. Gnosticism is slippery to define because it took different forms depending where you were in the empire. But let me, I'm trying in this slide to capture the essence of this, and our volunteers with big loud voices are going to read. In just a few minutes so Gnosticism came from the Greek word gnosis which means knowledge and what this was this was a false religion that was geared to inflate your mind with pride and the more hidden knowledge you had the more spiritual you were over others Everybody see how that can appeal? Mm-hmm. Okay, easily. So what had happened was in Gnosticism, you had this unnamed Father God that wasn't just real personal, but he exists up there. And this is spiritual, and this is the good. In contrast, the world, material things like your body and the chairs and buildings and trees and anything that you can see and touch, anything that we would call matter, was deemed evil and repugnant. I thought about how, how I can get this across. They just didn't say, well, matter's bad. Matter was something that you recoil from. Uh, and I was trying to think, what would be some things that people would recoil from here in the group tonight? You know, so I thought, okay. You ever get rooting around in the refrigerator and you finally get to the back of it and you find something that's been there for you don't know how long? Okay. Everybody know that feeling? Alright. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fuzzy, but it's not warm and fuzzy. Okay. Alright. So you got that. We're not talking about just saying that something's bad. We're talking about revulsion. All right? Here you have, then, this unnamed father-god-type figure that's not just altogether personal and this world situation of this repugnant matter. Now, these emanations or mediators are, less, are increasingly lesser gods, So this little red dot is close to this one, close to the Father in power and spirituality. But this one is less, and this one is less, and this one, until finally you get one down here that sort of made the world. And what Gnostics were saying is that Jesus is one of these. Follow me? All right. So if you're up here, this is the pleroma. That's a Greek word meaning fullness. And so the more you forsook this material world and became increasingly spiritual, you gain this fuller and fuller knowledge. Can you see how endless this can become? I mean, so we won't dwell too much longer on this. So you had this dualism where the spirit was good and matter was evil. Now, you have this kenoma or emptiness here that comes down. So Paul, in some of his earliest writings, is fighting this heresy, and I thought it would be appropriate. Let's just take a look. Colossians 1, 19 and 25. That first verse of, of 19, um, where Paul is talking about Jesus being the fullness of God, he is directly attacking this whole system. Follow me? And uh, Philip? For in Christ lives all the fullness of God in a human body. So You also are complete through your union with Christ, who is the head over every ruler and authority. Right. Notice there that Paul says, and we just take it for granted, you know. He says, God the Father was pleased for Christ, the fullness of God to what? Live, dwell in a human body. All right. God created matter He is not unhappy with it, and it is a foreign idea for us. And it goes back to the Greeks. You and I, as human beings, are spirit and body. We are going to have a resurrected body. God loves what he's created. The Greeks had this idea that you were spirit kind of trapped inside this thing that's going to go away and sooner the better kind of thing. You see the contrast between Christianity and not only false religion here, but Greek thought? Got it? Yes, Robert. Right there in Genesis 1 and 2, when God creates the material world, yeah. he pronounces it. Good. God. That's right. That's right. And you can meet Christian folks today that, you know, they're kind of tending a little bit on the ascetic side. You know, well, this is the old body, you know. Well, okay, yeah, it's going to fall apart, but God's going to resurrect it. And you're going to get a brand new one that's going to last for eternity. Okay, so this is a widespread heresy that's going on in, in the church. Uh, let's pass these out really quickly, and you can uh, take one of these. This is a listing of many of the different heresies that were running around, and we don't have time to look at all of them, but you can peruse those we're going to take a look at the Nicene Creed at at the end now let's take let's take a look at the uh, world conditions here before Constantine and the Council of Nicaea. We're talking about the historical events that led up to Constantine. The religious question, the religious question is, who is Jesus? And you have Orthodoxy versus Arianism, and you'll see Arianism on, on your sheet there. Okay. Politic, now. You and I live at a time when we're secure in our Christianity. We know the scriptures. But remember, these folks have just bits and pieces of the scriptures. No clear teaching on a lot of, on a lot of things. And so people would say, I believe that Jesus died for my sins, but they didn't know altogether just exactly who he was. Politically, now, we have a turmoil situation. And you cannot separate church history from political power. They go together. Remember Diocletian? We talked about him earlier. He abdicates in 305, one of the few emperors that stepped down. Most of them were ushered out, you know, having been murdered. Diocletian was... In power for a long time, he was convinced that the Roman Empire was too big to be managed by one emperor. So what he decided to do was, we're going to set up a western and an eastern empire. And we're going to have an emperor and a vice emperor. And we're going to call them an Augustus and a Caesar. In the west... We have Constantius as the Augustus. He's the emperor in the West. Diocletian had abdicated in 305, and in the East, we have Galerius as the Augustus, and the Caesar reporting to Galerius is named Severus. Meanwhile, the Caesar in the West is Constantine. Now, where are they? In the east, they're in Nicomedia. Where is Nicomedia? Across the Bosporus from? from Byzantium. Right. Okay. Remember that? Now, the reason why Diocletian set up Nicomedia over there for uh, for the eastern empire was, he said, we don't have to worry too much about invasions coming from the west. It's always the Persians that are coming. So, we're going to put the new... Eastern Roman Empire capital and Nicomedia to keep an eye on those guys and anybody else, the Assyrians or whoever that might be coming. Those were coming from, um, coming from further east. So you have Nicomedia here, and over here you have the west. And the Western Empire, the seat of, em- of empire is, you would think it was Rome, but they went further. It's York. England. All right. Now York, England, is about cent- center in the country toward the east. So Constantius and Constantine are over in York. Galerius and Severus are in Nicomedia, thousand miles apart. Constant- Constantius happens to be the father of Constantine. Constantius dies in 306. The Western legions nominate, guess who, to take his place? You guessed it, Constantine. So the Western legions say, you're our man. Constantine says, I think I'll do that. So he steps, in, steps into that role. Now, meanwhile, we have Maxentius. And Maxentius is in Rome. And Maxentius has real power ambitions, and he gets some of his legions together and says, I think I'm the new emperor. Well, Galerius over here says, we can't have that, so Galerius tells Severus, gather up the eastern legions and march on Rome and take care of this Maxentius problem. Constantine says, I'm going to sit with my legions, and I'm just going to wait until that whole situation solves itself, all right? Now, just to make this a little more interesting, Constantine is married to a woman named Fausta. Fausta happens to be Maxentius' sister. Is this starting to get really pretty good? Okay, hang on. All right, here is a bust of Maxentius. You remember from our first session that many of these sculptures look very, very similar, so we can pretty well rely that these people look like they did. So this is Maxentius, and that's an enlarged picture. That bust is not particularly larger than regular human size. But over here is Constantine. There's no way to make this proportional. That head from here to here is eight feet tall. Okay, that's the height of this ceiling. And that was on a sculpture that we think was somewhere around 50 to 60 feet tall. Constantine did things in a big way. All right, so here's what happens. Severus, Severus takes his eastern legions and marches on Rome, bent on taking care of Maxineus. That means killing him. Unfortunately, when Severus gets his legions over there, they mutiny. Severus is imprisoned, and the eastern legions ally themselves with Maxentius. Most of the time, the legions would go to whoever had the most money, and whoever would bribe them, hey, you're our man. So Severus is imprisoned, later beheaded. So now... Maxentius has the Eastern and his own legions. Constantine says, all right, it's time to move. So he gathers up his legions, crosses the English Channel, marches through France all the way across, and meets Rome, or meets Maxentius at the Milvian Bridge. The Milvian Bridge is still there. It looks exactly like that today. Those are the two pictures. This is the same bridge as it was then. It was on the, uh, Barbara, I was thinking about you. It was on the Via Flaminia Road that went right across it. And so what happens is Constantine meets Maxentius at the bridge. Their armies clash we don't know exactly what, how it happened, but Maxentius ended up in the river, drowned, all right? Constantine won the day. He was, um, this was October, October 27th of 312. The day before, he was scoping out this whole area to, uh, for the impending battle. And according to Eusebius, he sees this vision in the sky and the words, in, in hoc Vinces, I'm not sure of that, but translated what it means is, "In this sign, conquer." And it was the first two letters of the Word of Christ, the Kai Rho. He was so overwhelmed by that, they say, that he had his uh, legions put that on their shields. We don't know if that's true. Sounds good. Could well be. Remember the Romans, including the army and including the the leaders, were very, very superstitious. He had already consulted the various um, uh, soothsayers that always accompanied uh, the army. The omens said, don't do it. The birds aren't flying the right way. The clouds aren't aligned up right. Those kinds of things. But he saw this vision, and he went forward. He was victorious. And from that point on, Eusebius says, the historian Eusebius of Caesarea says that Constantine was a Christian. I'm going to let you decide. We're going to do some pro and con here in a minute. So, now, Constantine then becomes the Augustus in 306. He assumes... Uh, emperorship in 312, Edict of Milan in 313, which legalizes Christianity, and now we have a growing widespread heresy within the empire of Arius and Arianism. Arianism is not Gnosticism. Arianism says Christ is not God, He's a created being, He's not eternal, and Christ is a kind of a divine hero. Now, you and I have a hard time believing it, but this question about who is Jesus Christ began to permeate the entire Roman Empire. Constantine looks at this and says, things are getting out of hand here. And we have recorded incidents where people would go into, Const- or into Byzantium or into Rome and they would say, you know, can I buy a, a goat or go to the baker and buy some bread? And in the course of the transaction, they'd say, who do you think Jesus is? You know, you know, is he God or not God? And this would create, uh, you know, this, this back and forth. We would find that um, just incomprehensible. But it really spread through the empire. Constantine says, this isn't good for the empire. So... The, has, we have the empire in turmoil. Constantine wants peace, and so he declares that we're going to have the council of Nicaea, and we're going to answer this question of who is Jesus Christ. Now, remember, you're dealing here with a man that understands power and likes action, and this is a lot of words, and if we can all just get together in one room, we can get this hammered out. Right, boys? It's going to happen. All right, so what happens is you have the emperor of the empire convening a church council. Does that seem a little strange? Okay, because up until now, we've been killing Christians, the authorities have. Now you have somebody that's going to convene a council and bring about resolution. So... We move on. Yes? Yeah, and it's, it's at the end of the day, too. Uh, no, I believe... No, he didn't go back. Didn't go back to England. Uh, he, I think he stayed in Rome for a while. But then in 330, he declared Byzantium Constantinople. And exactly... 1600 later, 1600 years later, the country of Turkey declared Constantinople Istanbul. All right, everybody get it? Byzantium, Constantinople, Istanbul. All right, so from 312 forward, Constantine openly supported Christianity. And we should pause here for something really important. Take your hand out and turn to page 9, the last page. So what happens is this. Constantine sends throughout the empire that he wants all of the important bishops across the empire, from England to the Far East, to converge on this little city of Nicaea, which I said was down the road from Constantinople. So 318 bishops show up in all their robes, all expenses paid. You have men who have been persecuted and maimed for their faith being escorted to Nicaea. So here comes Constantine. He has the bishops gathered in the great hall. He has on all of his imperial robes. And makes this grand entrance. There is no question as to who's in charge. All right? He comes in, gets them all together, and says, Okay, now we're going to settle this question about who Jesus is. So you have two proponents or two combatants. On the one hand, you have Arius, who believes what we've been saying. And on the other hand, you have Athanasius. Athanasius is a bishop from Alexandria in Egypt, okay? And they go at it, back and forth. And this went on for several days. Finally, Constantine could see that the direction was going toward Athanasius. He grew impatient, as men of action frequently do. And he says, okay, this is it. You guys come up with what we know of today as the Nicene Creed, Case adjourned. Arius is declared a heretic. Okay. So all but two of the bishops and Arius signed what we know of as the Nicene Creed. Now, take that and let's look. Understand, remember, this is 325 A.D. There is no complete New Testament anywhere. And these guys... Come up with that, so Robert, good loud voice yeah and, and 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 handle this reverently, okay, because this is our this is the bedrock of our faith, answering the question of who Jesus is, and these men hammered this out, and it 's been with us ever since remember i 've been trying to help you see that all of church history is a continuous fabric that moves down through time. And you and I are going to meet these people that were there. And don't think just of the bishops that were there. Think of all the supporting people that, got, that came along that were part of it. You know, I, I ironed old Bishop, what's his name's robes, you know, and somebody carried their bags. And, you know, God valued all of that. Constantine in this one of one of the bishops had had one of his eyes gouged out uh, during his persecution. He was a bishop from Egypt and and Constantine goes up to him and kisses the cheek of where the eye was missing. I mean, this is this is real stuff here. Okay, so, Robert, read that. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the quick and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. Right. There are so many key phrases in there. Born of a virgin. The, the Roman people, people in ancient times had no problem with the idea of a virgin birth. Their problem was that God became human. What? Are you kidding me? Whereas it's just the opposite today. You know, virgin birth, Oh, couldn't possibly. And the fullness of God, God of very God, that's attacking all these different heresies. Okay, so positive legacy from Constantine. He brought peace to the empire for a while. He allowed Christianity to flourish. He abolished uh, executions by crucifixion. If you want to know when they stopped, so think of from 312, you have hundreds of years there where uh, uh, crucifixion was carried out regularly. Many times when people were uh, arrested as criminals, they would put them in jail, give them a little training, and say, guess what? You're going to fight with some gladiators. If you win, you get to live. If you don't, you die. He declared Sunday a holiday, donated huge amounts of money for churches and buildings. He made sure his sons and daughters were raised as Christians, he established the great city of the East, Constantinople. Um, we could also say that he was baptized at the end of his life as a, as a believer. He laid aside all of his royal robes. He was baptized. People, Christians then were baptized in a plain, simple white linen robe. He was baptized in that, and he wore it. Uh, for a, a, he continued to wear it, never put on his royal robes again, and died in in that linen robe. Now, you have to understand too, that um, there was a widespread belief that if you s- sinned after you were baptized, that you would lose your salvation. So many times believers would wait till near the end of their life to be baptized. Anybody see any correlation between that and other teaching we know of today? Last rites? All right. So these were some positive things that that happened as a result of Constantine, one of the great figures in the Christian heritage. But there's also the dark side. We wonder, was his conversion really a conversion or was it merely political because he was astute and realized that he could use religion to unify the empire? He conspired, he murdered, he retained the title of Pontifex Maximus, which means the the great pontiff. This was a position as the head of the Roman state, religion. He ruled the bishops as he did his civil servants. He demanded unconditional obedience to his official pronouncements. And prior to Constantine, as I had intimated earlier, the church was largely believers, but afterwards the church began to be increasingly secular because they viewed the church and the uh, political power as blended together. He mingled state political affairs with church matters. Religion now became an opportunity for the politically ambitious. Power climbers were disinterested in the gospel, theology, and evangelism. Instead, where can I go in this hierarchy? And you had paganism uh, infiltrating the church with coming unbelievers. And in time... The church resume, rules the state. Isn't it ironic? Tables are now, now turned. Okay. Uh, well, I didn't put it up here, but uh, when I said that he murdered, anybody know what he murdered? He murdered his son. He, one of his sons, he murdered his wife, and he murdered a nephew. Remember, we're dealing with ruthless people in ruthless times. Let me stop, almost stop here. We have here Constantine, he is in power. You saw how he rose to power, solidified that, then began to empower the church. So here's 313 with the Edict of Milan. Now we go jump down here to 380 and 390. Constantine has died. He has passed off the scene, some other intervening emperors. And now we have Emperor Theodosius. Emperor Theodosius in 380 decrees that everyone in the empire is going to be a Christian. Ironically, if you go back here, everyone in the empire is not going to be a Christian and we're going to kill you. All right? So Emperor Theodosius decrees now, under the influence of the church, that everybody is going to, whether you like it or not, you're going to go. Okay? So, we now have this happen. Now, time goes by. Everybody remember the city of Thessalonica? How so? First and second Thessalonians. Paul wrote to it. All right? Thessalonica, a big city. They had uh, an arena that looked like, sort of like the Cowboy Stadium, only not quite that big. And... So Emperor Theodosius has made this decree. Now, along about 380 here, uh, excuse me, 390, we're getting ready for the important games at Thessalonica, okay? We're dealing with sport now. And we have the charioteers, and we love the chariot races, okay? Remember Ben-Hur? You see that movie? Okay, love these chariot races. One of the chariot race drivers is, is accused of being a homosexual. Relevant to today, but that's what happened. He's accused of this, so they arrest him. We can't have those kinds of people, so we arrest him and put him in jail. Now, the games are coming, and there's a lot of money riding on these chariot races. And a lot of the powers that be come to the governor of Thessalonica and say, we want Joe out, out of prison to run in the, in the chariot races. The governor refuses. Not going to do that because the emperor has said no. Now, the people in Thessalonica, at least some of them, have a riot. They kill the governor and spring Joe from jail so we can have him for the races. Now, I know some of you think I'm making this up, but it's not. Okay? So, now, so what happens then is Emperor hears about this and says, this can't be allowed to be happening. So, he dispatches a couple of legions to Thessalonica surrounds the Colosseum while the games are going on, locks the doors, the legions go in, and 7,000 people are murdered. really happened. Now, Ambrose, meanwhile, is one of the early church fathers, is in Milan, Italy. He hears of all this, and he says to Theodore, uh, to... Theodorus, Theodosius, I mean, you have sinned. Really? Yeah, you have. And you are a member of the church. You're going to have to repent. Now, you and I are used to living in a free country where we can say what we want, when we want. Yeah, it's getting me. I know, I know. Just bear with me. Okay. All All right. But for... A high church official, the bishop of Milan, to tell the emperor, you have sinned is a first, okay? Now what's going to happen? Ambrose says to the church, don't allow Theodosius to come in. Now, you're talking about some brave person here, okay? Theodosius thinks about this for a while and says, um, maybe you're right. Long story short, Theodosius applied a couple of times to come back to the church to Ambrose. Finally, on the third time, Ambrose says, yes, you can come back adequately, repent, makes him wait outside in his bare feet, some other humiliating things. Now something has really happened. For the first time in Christian history, we now have exercised church authority over the political authority, and including with it is a new tool called excommunication. All right? Now that sets the stage for the rest of medieval history. The church is in power, and it influences the political power. I should have mentioned also, remember my my story telling you about Athanasius and Arius? Athanasius carries the day. Constantine says, okay, that's what we're going to believe. We create the Nicene Creed. Now, what happens is, though, Eusebius of Caesarea was a friend of Arius. Eusebius was in the pocket of Constantine. He says, Constantine, Arius is really not that bad. He's really not. So what happens is over the time, the tables get turned, Arius rises back into power. In the course of Athanasius' life, he was excommunicated, or that's not the right word. He was banished out of the church on five different times, lived in the desert in Egypt and among tombs and by himself for year, years at a time, and other times he was brought back. So you have pol- political power operating with the re- religious power. Does that make sense? You get a sense of the progression here? We're going to stop here. Thank you for your, for your kind attention.